I didn't realize it at the time. You only realize it after the fact. But um, I remember it was cool. There was these get-togethers at, at home, and there would be these big stretch limos out in front of the house, three or four of them. And that wasn't real common in the 70s. Like If somebody was rolling up in a stretch limo, there was like something happening. And then the parties got pretty wild sometimes at the house. Even if it was like a maybe one or two promotion guys and a couple of DJs and an artist or two would pop over and, you know, the barbecue would be going, Butterball would be doing some barbecue. Butterball was this amazing personality character. Uh, he was this just big, fat, jolly black guy who had like a real good connection in the black community. And he was one of my dad's right-hand guys and he made incredible barbecue. That was uh, one of the things that they used to do all the time. So he'd be out there barbecuing. They'd be pouring the booze and a little pile of cocaine over there, a little mm -hmm. weed over there. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And how old was, let's say... <laughs> like 11, 12, six, yeah. 11, 12, and you're yeah. this. You know, a lot of these people were real affectionate and loving and kind people. My dad had a right-hand man, this uh, real tough, you know, street-tough motherfucker. His name was Rico. And he was a, a boxer from the Marines, and um, and he had this like, little thirty-eight kind of tucked in his belt, and he was uh, he would always like beat my ass, <laughs> but I would love it, you know, like any young boy, he would knock me around, and I'd go running away, and I'd come back and get more, and uh, then there was this real amazing, off the charts promotion guy, Fred Rector. He was really like a personality like you can't even imagine. And he was this really tall kind of mulatto guy and he had the cool Hollywood glasses on and he was real wiry and just always had good, kind, fun things to say to everybody. And, uh, you know, he was the guy walking into radio stations, you know, with a few grams of blow and a few hundred dollars and getting the records played. Mm -hmm. And uh, making shit happen. And was he just doing that around Miami? Or around the world. Around the world. This cat would hit three, four cities a day for weeks wow. in a row. Yeah, so those guys would all be at the house. And then Gwen McRae would show up, or Casey would show up, or Rick Finch would show up, or George McRae would show up, or Betty Wright, or Willie Clark. And, you know, it was pretty wild. And then when I would go hang out at TK, it was kind of like a little wonderland. I was very musical from a very young age. I loved to sing and, and, and dance and get involved. And then I would go in and look at the, at the mixing board and, and all the outboard gear and the tape decks and just kind of be amazed at it. And uh, as I got older, I wanted to get involved with um, music, but Henry wouldn't let me. Hi, I'm Matthew Billy, and this is Between the Liner Notes, a podcast about music, why it is the way it is, and how it got to be that way. We are a member of the Go Rodeo Network. And fair warning, this episode contains some explicit language. By the time Joe Stone entered his teenage years, his father, Henry Stone, had spent the last three decades building a thriving independent record business. After being honorably discharged from the Army in 1947, Henry moved to Miami and founded his first label, one of the first to record Ray Charles. Through the 50s and 60s, Henry's various labels released a succession of hit records. 
but it wasn't until the disco era in the 1970s when he reached a pinnacle of seemingly boundless prosperity. His label at the time, TK Records, released one of the first disco songs to rise to the top of the pop charts, George McRae's Rock Your Baby, and soon followed up McRae's hit with blockbuster albums by Casey and the Sunshine Band and T-Connection, to name a few. As TK Records prospered, everyone associated with the label enjoyed all the standard excesses of the music industry. Money, limos, drugs, parties, payola, and in this particular case, Butterball's Barbecue. Henry's son Joe spent his formative years watching his father ride the crest of the disco wave, and, for obvious reasons, wanted to follow in his dad's footsteps. See, I never called Henry dad in outside world because, uh, you know, I worked with him a lot, and I just always called him Henry. Just because I didn't think it was cool to say, hey, dad. And a lot of times people didn't know that we were father and son, and we didn't advertise it. I wanted to get involved with um, music, but uh, Henry wouldn't let me get involved. I think he had a thing with his kids and the business. He wanted me to take another path because I think he knew how difficult the music industry is to, to make a decent living in. I mean, even though, you know, listen, Henry had an amazing run in the music industry. Decades of success. I mean, with huge, life-changing hit records. This kind of music that changed the world. This guy was responsible for putting out. I always looked at that and thought, gosh, you know, this must be easy. But I think he knew the realities of it, that he was the exception and not the rule. Yeah, every time I would say, hey, you know, I want to come work for you. It was like, no, that's not happening. And I think a lot of his other kids wanted to go and work with him. and, And they pretty much got the same answer. In episode 19, Discophobia, we spent a lot of time talking about the recession that hit the music industry in 1979. To briefly summarize the causes again, in 1978, records like the Grease and the Saturday Night Fever soundtracks sold millions upon millions of copies. The following year, record companies assumed more records would sell in those quantities, but they didn't, and warehouses wound up with a glut of unbought albums returned from the record stores. This excess of inventory sent the industry into a tailspin, It was the industry's first recession since World War II, and it claimed many casualties in its wake, including TK Records. In 1981, lacking the money to pay his company's debt obligations, Henry filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy. But still, the bill collectors kept calling. With all other options exhausted, Henry decided to become business partners with a man named Morris Levy, who promised to end his financial woes. Henry was well aware of Levy's reputation. He was a record executive known for founding Roulette Records, his involvement with the payola scandal of the late 50s, and his close ties with the Genovese crime family. But Henry felt that the rewards outweighed the risks and formed a distribution company with Levy, and also a label named Sunnyview Records. It was during this period when Joe Stone made his way into the music business. Henry had opened up a distribution company with the infamous Morris Levy out of New York. And um, he was out of town a lot in New York at that time. And he and Morris had opened this distribution company called Independent Record Distributors. And it was in the same location that TK was and Tone was. 
So I had the bright idea of going down to 495 Southeast 10th Court and asking some of these uh, guys that were working there, managers that didn't know me, I used a different last name, if I could have a job. First, they were like, no, we don't need anybody. And I was like, look, I'll do whatever you need. I'll go get you guys lunch. I'll make deliveries. I'll, I'll work in the warehouse, whatever you need. And so this one guy, Rick, that was like one of the sales managers, he was like, well, okay, come, you know, next week. And, and you know, I was a good employee. I had started working when I was a kid, when I was like 11 or 12. I always had jobs. I was, you know, I was pumping gas at the Gulf gas station when I was, you know, 12. So I'm there for about a month and a half. And at this point, Henry is mostly in New York, dealing with getting Sunnyview started. So Henry wasn't really here that much. And I am working in this warehouse, doing the deliveries, picking lunch up, and doing uh, returns. I'm sitting in the back of the warehouse, and uh, I didn't know it, but Henry was back in town. And he comes walking into the warehouse, and he sees me sitting back there. I'm sitting on a little crate, digging through <laughs> these returns. And he goes, what the fuck are you doing here? And I go, huh? What? What are you talking about? Oh, me? I work here. And he's like, the fuck you do? He goes, get the fuck out of here. And I was like, no, but you don't understand. I got a job. He goes, you. He goes, I don't understand. And he threw me out. And I was like, I went left. And I was all dejected and sad. And I get home. And I was crying to my mom about it. And uh, a day or two later, he says to me, like a throwaway line, he says, uh, be at the office at 9 o'clock Monday. And I was like, huh? <laughs> I didn't ask twice. He proceeded to uh, put me to work on some incredibly awful jobs. I mean, horrible shit. There was a fire at the Tone TK building. The smoke damage got like almost on everything. When there's a fire, the stuff that gets burned, it's awful. But the stuff that gets that soot and smoke, it's really awful. And it's like thick and heavy and it smells and it's, it's like really dirty and it sticks to everything. So there were all these hundreds and hundreds of master tapes from all the TK recording sessions that were covered in soot. And they were up in one area of the building and they needed to be cleaned off, brought to another area, and put into some kind of an order. So he put me on that job. It was months worth of work and it was horrible. About two or three years later, we had some big stuff come up with the master tapes and uh, a lot of questions. And the only person that knew that information was me. I gave myself knowledge and I made myself valuable because of all that horrible work. That was how I got in. And once I was in, the way to get the key to the studio was my next trick. We'll have more about Joe's quest for a studio key right after the break. Last month, I decided I needed new glasses. I wanted high-quality, great-looking glasses, but I didn't want a pair that cost as much as an iPhone. Fortunately, Warby Parker's prescription glasses start at only $95, and that includes frames, lenses, and coatings. Plus, I was able to try on frames without going to a store. 
Using Warby Parker's completely free, no obligation to buy home try-on program, I simply went to the Warby Parker website, picked out five frames, and they shipped them to me to try on for five days. And if you want to get a friend's opinion, the Warby Parker iPhone app makes it easy to take photos of yourself wearing all five frames, stitch them together into a video, and share it with anyone. Visit warbyparker.com notes, as in liner notes, to get started with your free home try-on. That's warbyparker.com notes. And for every pair of glasses you buy, Warby Parker sends a pair to someone in need. Each day, after Joe finished moving boxes around the warehouse, he wandered over to the TK Recording Studio close by, hoping to be allowed inside to watch the musicians, producers, and engineers make records. I would watch, and I would listen. I would pay attention. And I've started to see that if you knew how to move the knobs and put those little patch cords in the right holes, you could be of value. And there was only usually one or two guys that knew how to do all that. And that's when I was like, hey, maybe if I learn how to do that, I can get a key. But learning to do all that wasn't easy. Some of the engineers at the studio were happy to let Joe observe their recording sessions, but others didn't want to deal with having a teenager in the room. One engineer even took it upon himself to consciously stand in Joe's way and obstruct him from learning anything. So this engineer... Uh, his name is Freddie. He used to come hanging around the house a lot. He was he was hanging out with my dad. Towards the end of TK, when things were really kind of wacky, there was always, for some reason, a couple of people that kind of lived at TK. One was this old guy, Sax Carey. It's a whole nother story. There was this guy, Freddie, and he lived in a different part, but another guy who lived at the studio. I don't know what was up with that. Anyway, this guy was always rolling... Uh, with Henry and kind of doing little side gigs for Henry. and He was this skinny, kind of Aztec-looking cat. And uh, Freddie would come to the house, and he was always kind of nice to me, just in a way to like make my dad happy, I think. But I always knew it wasn't for real, and he was always... He would especially be nice if I had weed. For sure he'd be nice. Hey, Joe, what's going up, my man? Anyway, you know, through the years, he would, you know, over like a two-year period, he would get an attitude with me sometimes. He was just a moody guy. And I remember asking him, to, hey, can I help you in the studio? He's like, no, sorry, you're not allowed. So uh, I remember a couple different times asking him on sessions, hey, can I help? Can I hang out? No, dude, I'm sorry. You, you know what? You're not allowed to be in on this session. You're going to have to leave. In the 80s, when I started to get a little older and I was hanging around the studio more and doing, you know, trying to get involved, there was uh, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I don't know, even know how the deal happened at the time, B.B. King was recording his 50th anniversary album at the TK Studios. And they brought in a couple of big-time producers. They brought in Luther Dixon and Dave Crawford. Luther Dixon had done, like, the Shirelles and, you know, all that stuff with Scepter Records, Mama Said. And Dave Crawford did, you know, Young Hearts Run Free, Candy State. And and then B.B. King was coming in and out. And they were bringing in all kinds of different people. And I ended up, like, palling up with Dave Crawford and Luther Dixon and hanging out with them. And, um... As it turns out, they didn't have a car. I had a car. So I kind of started to become their driver, and I got to hang out, and I got to watch them craft these different songs for B.B. King and write charts and how they wrote. And 
and at one point I was getting involved with with those guys and, and they were bringing me into all the sessions and Freddie was the engineer on these sessions and every time I would walk in with them Freddie would kind of give me this leering look like what the fuck are you doing in here you juvenile pretentious little prick your daddy didn't say you could be in here I mean he didn't say that but that's what it sounded like from his eyes anyway during that session when BB King was playing some lead one day I've been coming to the sessions now for about three, four weeks. And BB's guitar pick hit the pickup and it made like a chikunk noise during the lead. And everybody was like, oh, that was amazing, Mr. King. Everybody was kissing his ass. And I look over at Dave Crawford and I kind of go, didn't anybody hear that? And Dave was like, what's that? What's that, Joe? And I was like, oh, don't say my name that loud, please. What's wrong with you? And he says, oh, no, Joe's got something to say. And I was like, what are you doing? The whole session stops. Baby King's looking at me, Dave, Luther, Freddie's looking at me like, dude, seriously? So Dave, who was like directing the session, says, yo, uh, play it back and turn up the guitar track. So this engineer turns the guitar track up like not even a half a dB, barely pushes the fader. And he plays it back. Everybody looks at each other. I, I didn't hear anything sounded fine to me. And I was like, oh, my God. And I got that feeling when your bowels kind of drop and your, your heart starts beating faster. And then my skin went cold. And I was like, oh, my God. And they're all looking at me. They played it back two or three times. And finally, Dave got mad and said, turn the motherfucking guitar track up. And that's when Freddie looks over at me and wants to throw me out of the session. And at that point, I had watched the counter on the auto-locator to see exactly where in time the little that the pick made was. It was at 3 minutes and 21 seconds, by the way. Anyway, they play it one more time. Mr. King stands up at this point. He's leaning in on the console. And he looks over at me and he goes, Son, you got yourself some good ears there. Play it back. I need to re-record that part. And the guy sat down and played the exact same thing, exact, but without the chunk in the, uh, in the pickup. It was amazing. And about 10 minutes later, Freddie gets up, says, hey, come here. Walks me out of the session, says, you're not in this session anymore today. You need to go home. And I was like, but dude. He goes, no, you need to get the fuck out of here. I was like, all right. So I, you know, I, I went home crying about that. Joe left, but he returned to the studio the next day, and it turns out some people weren't happy he'd gone home. Dave and Luther were like, hey, where did you go? I was like, no, you know, he told me I had to leave. And they are like, no, no, no. That guy doesn't tell anybody what to do. I'm the boss of the session. You get back in the studio right now. And so that was really the beginning of the end of our nice relationship and me sharing any of my weed with Freddie. As hard as he tried, Freddie wasn't able to keep Joe out of the studio and prevent him from learning what all the knobs and buttons in the control room were for. The studio engineers were kind to Joe, and not just because he had good weed. There was a handful of engineers there. Some were not cool and would uh, not share any information. And there was other guys that were super cool and was like, yeah, hey, come here, let me show you how this works. And, um, you know, it's those guys 
so secure with their own skill set that were willing to share their knowledge with you know a young guy that was coming up so i started to learn how to use all the gear and then i remember one day michael sterling really wanted to work on some tracks and nobody was going to be around michael sterling is a musician and record producer best known for his work with inner circle who had the hit song bad boys and i was like here's my opportunity so i said hey henry listen michael you know he's uh, he wants to work on some tracks and i'm available and uh, the studio's empty uh, i just need a key and henry says oh okay here take mine so he gives me his key and i go and i do the session you know nervous as can be <laughs> hadn't engineered anything really yet but michael also knew his way around so when i would stop and get lost he would real cool like say oh no it's, it's this button just turn that one on like, oh okay cool joe's first time as lead engineer was shaky but he muddled through and would soon earn the trust of the producers that called tk studios home but when freddie found out that joe had a key he was determined to take it away and uh about three or four days later one of those engineers that wasn't so secure catches me like in the back hallway where these it was like between the two studios and there was these two big echo chambers and he catches me right in that hallway and he says hey i need that key back and i was kind of intimidated but i was also at my wits end with this particular person that was pushing me always pushing me out and I said, yeah, well, here's the thing, man. Henry gave me this key. Yeah, yeah, he told me to get it back from you. I said, well, I'll tell you what. I'll give it back to him. I'm not going to give it to you because he didn't tell me to give it to you. So if you're telling me he told me to give it to you, that's great. But I'll give it back to him. And he said, no, seriously, you have to give me that key now. And I said, fuck you. I'm not giving you the key. I go back home and I said, Henry, so-and-so told me that you wanted me to give you the key back or give it to him. And he goes, I didn't tell anybody shit. He says, that's your key. Hold on to it. From there, you know, things progressed and I was able to uh, make my way into producing and recording my first idea which was a song called Ronnie's Rap by Ron and the DC Crew. There was this guy on the radio doing this impression of Ronald Reagan, and I heard him on the morning show, Mark Mosley, and I go, oh shit, I said, this, this would make a great record. So I went and I called him, and I was like, hey, I'm, my name's Joe Stone, and I'm producing this record, and uh, you come over and do the, you know, da da da. I said, I wrote some lyrics, and uh, if you do this part, and so I got Mark Mosley, do this, you know, my name's Ron, and I'm here to say that I'm the biggest rapper in the USA. Well, I'm the big kidder, and I'm here to say that I'm the biggest rapper in the USA. Yeah, my name's Ron with my DC crew, going on record with a rap for you. We put the record out. I got this old, old, old promo guy that was borrowing an office of TK, Mo Preskell. His character from the music industry was a big pop promotion record guy. And he was borrowing an office. He was in between spaces uh, over there at TK. And I was like, hey, Mo, can you help me promote this record? <laughs> so uh, we got the record. We mailed it out. And 
within about five, six weeks, I get a call from Profile, who at the time had run DMC, Rob Bass, all those killer rap acts. And I was like, oh my gosh. They were like, hey, we want to pick this record up and put it out nationally. And I was like, oh my God, amazing. And I ended up getting an advance, like $3,000, which, you know, $3,986 it's like 30k today. I was like huge money and I was like, "Oh my god." And then 5 weeks later, it went on the pop charts. In the winter of 1987, Ronnie's rap spent 4 weeks on the Billboard Hot 100, peaking at 93. And I was like, "Oh my god, it's happening. <laughs> this is amazing." And I come walking in, you know, big balls and all, and I go, "Henry, I got a fucking record on the pop charts motherfuckers and henry looks at me and goes yeah he goes and what the fuck does that mean i go i'm making money now and he goes you'll never see a fucking penny from that record company i go what are you talking about he goes you got the advance he goes be happy with that you want to make money on the record put a show together go out and do some shows i've never seen a penny from that record company not a penny but I did make several thousand dollars doing, doing track shows with uh, a Ronald Reagan mask, a Hawaiian T-shirt, and, uh, and a microphone and a couple of breakdancers. Uh, I did all the clubs locally, some in New York, some in Texas, some in California. It was a riot. And, so your dad was right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Straight up right. Yeah, he was usually right. After the success of Ronnie's rap, Joe continued to produce hip-hop. He tapped into the burgeoning Miami bass scene, producing hits like La Trim's Cars That Go Boom and tracks off Gucci Crew 2's hit album, Everybody Wants Some. For the most part, the Miami bass sound was a regional phenomenon. That is, until 1989 when Two Live Crew's album, As Nasty As They Wanna Be, and the obscenity trial that resulted from the record's lyrics catapulted the genre into the national spotlight. As television talk shows debated where the line between free speech and obscenity fell, the Two Live Crew controversy inspired Joe's next comedic idea. The Two Live Jews, so the whole, the whole thing was happening with uh, the media stuff, with the Two Live Crew this, Two Live Crew that, and Two Live Crew this. And I used to have a poker game every Friday night. There was about six or seven of us that played poker, you know, straight up poker. And we would play every Friday night starting around 9 o'clock and usually play till about 8, 9 o'clock Saturday morning. It was a real cool group of, like, writers, record producers, actors, and comedians. And everybody was working and somewhat successful in the group. And we would laugh and and play cards all night and drink beers and smoke cigarettes and talk shit. And uh, one night, one of the guys in the group was a comedian. He had showed up a little late to the game because their second show was sold out and they were killing and yada, yada, yada. So... He shows up and he looks, sits down and looks at me and he goes, oh, I tell you, it was tough out there tonight. I feel like one live Jew all alone by myself. And I started and everybody laughed. And I said, you know, it would be funnier. Two live Jews. And he laughed and everybody laughed. And then we went about playing the card game. Joe didn't leave his brainstorm on the poker table with his lost chips. The next day, he decided to make the parody rap group a reality. When he woke up, Joe rang his friend from the poker game whose comment sparked the idea, a Jewish comedian named Eric Lambert. And the next day, I called Eric and I said, hey, uh, I want to do an album and call the group The Two Live Jews. And he was like, what, what, what do you mean? Because he didn't know exactly what I did. He knew I was in the music business and I had written some songs and produced some songs and that he knew. And 
I said, do you want to do this thing with me? You can be the other Jew. And Eric was like, yeah, okay, sure. What do we do? I said, meet me tomorrow at the studio. We're going to start making records. So I did as I always do, because that's what I did. I would go to the studio seven days a week, and I would make records. So I just took a bunch of different ideas. I'm a Jewish kid, and I, you know, kind of created this character. I was like... I'm going to name my character Easy Irving, which was an homage to Easy. So I named this character Easy, and I asked Eric, what do you want to call your guy? And he goes, uh, MC Moisha. And I go, perfect. So we start writing, and I get the 808, and I bust out some tracks. And then I brought Larry Davison, who was like an in-house guy that worked with us. And he started doing all these overdubs and getting all these cool, like, uh, he started grabbing some old klezmer tracks and like mimicking those and putting like the little you know it was it was cool chicken in the mall just the other day i was checking out the girlies and the schmucks and the toupees it was time to get busy it started getting dark so we busted out the door onto the sidewalk walking back to the hotel from the bagel shop it was so damn humid it was almost like a mop i was shredding like a I had the idea to get like a real nasally Jewish girl to come in and do this part on this song, Oy, It's So Humid, that I wrote. And the funny thing about the song, Oy, It's So Humid, I literally wrote the whole song, my verse and his verse, in 15 minutes. The words all came to me. I was sitting there, I was like, kicking in the mall. And Eric was over on the couch sitting there, and I'm writing. I was checking out the girlies and the schmucks in the toothpaste. I literally wrote the whole song in 15 minutes. And I looked up and I was like, all right, I got this one. I said, you know what would be cool if we get a Jewish, like real nasally Jewish girl to come in and sing this part in the middle? Oh, it's so humid, you know, really super Jewy and and... And uh, he's like, I got just the girl. I was like, you do? He's like, yeah. He goes, this girl I'm trying to stup over here. And she's a pain in the ass. Her voice is horrible. I can't, I can't even stup her because her voice is horrible. He goes, like, she's perfect. So she, she comes in and she gets on the microphone. I was like, oh, my God, this girl's voice is perfect. It's horrible. I said, you couldn't even sit in there and talk to her. So how will you guys do it? I was like, horrible. Perfect. So she sang the part. put the record out I remember walking into the office and saying to Henry we need to hire a publicity firm to promote this record well what are you fucking talking about publicity firm we don't use publicity firms we use record people we promote it through the radio I go it's not that kind of a project I said we need to get a New York publicity firm and we need to do it like through electronic media and through print media and Everybody there fought me on that. Finally, I, I, I won, and I hired, I ended up hiring this girl, Ida Langsam, who was the publicist for the Ramones, who was an Orthodox Jew. Perfect. We put it out, and Ida starts working it. And about three weeks in, I'll never forget, one of the guys that I play poker with calls me at 7.30 in the morning. Now, first of all, you work in the entertainment business. You don't call fucking people at 7.30 in the morning. <laughs> we are either just getting home or we've been asleep for several hours. So I was like, ah, ah. And this guy's like, dude, they're talking about you on Zeta 4. I go, what? 
They're talking about you as they divorce. Regis and Kathy Lee, you're in the USA Today, and they want to have you on their show tomorrow. I was like, what? I said, what? I woke up. I said, all right, goodbye. I called my publicist. I was like, hey, what's going on? She goes, yeah, the, the, the article, um, the front page of the USA Today at the bottom, David Zimmerman, I think, is the guy who wrote the article, and they put the cover, and Regis and Kathy Lee were talking about it. And they got a hold of us, and the next morning, we were on the Regis and Kathy Lee show. And, and then it just exploded, man. After the performance on Live with Regis and Kathy Lee, as kosher as they want to be climbed to 150 on the Billboard album chart, following the success of its first album, the group recorded three more before finally dissolving in 1998, cementing its position as one of the leading hip-hop groups, yes, that's a real phrase, of all time. Only a year after the two live Jews released their first album, a friend of Joe's presented him with another opportunity. This one came from across the Atlantic. One day, Joe received a call from a DJ he knew who was living in Europe. He told Joe about this new form of electronic dance music called trance that was blowing up all over the continent. I just had recently gotten a call from one of the guys that I also came up with, this guy Frankie Bones. And Frankie was an up-and-coming DJ. And he had left the States and gone to work in Europe. And he called me from over there, and he's a character. It's like real Brooklyn character, Frankie Bones. He's like, hey, Stone, what's going on, man? Yeah, hey, listen, it's fucking techno music fucking blowing up over here. It's fucking incredible. You got to get your hands on this shit. I was like, oh, yeah, for real? Yeah, yeah, fuck, you got to get involved in this shit. It's crazy, man. I was like, all right, yeah, for sure. I said, you got anything specific? Yeah, I'm going to send you some fucking records. You got to get, I'm telling you, this is the shit. Joe liked what Frankie Bones was saying, but he wasn't sure how to go about signing these European acts. Then one day, he was contacted by a different friend who had the exact same idea, a longtime business associate named Jürgen Korteluch. I did a lot of work with uh, this guy Jürgen Korteluch. And Jürgen is this German guy that was in the business in the 70s. At the time, I think he was married to Claude Jabari. He had been involved with uh, George Kranz. He was involved with uh, Keith Forsey, with uh, all the Donna Summer stuff. And good record guy. And Jürgen says to me, you know, listen, I'm, I'm talking to these guys in Europe about this new music, this techno stuff. I think we can get a pretty good deal and distribute the stuff here in the States. And, you know, you guys, you and Henry, you, you'll distribute it. And I was like, oh, yeah, for sure. I said, I, I, I'm into it. We ended up making this first couple deals with this group called Two Unlimited. They had a record out of Holland called uh, Get Ready for This. We get this record. We make the deal. We, I remember wiring the guys from Holland like $500 advance, which was a lot in those days, 1990. And behind them, there were another 25, 30 groups. So we started lining all these groups up to get their material for the world or for North America to press and release on a label that we did a joint with Jurgen called Radical Records. So we put the records out. And uh, nobody, nobody wants to play the records. Why? They're incredibly fast. They're 136 beats per minute. There are no verses. It's just a hook and a kick-ass groove. So I remember I had a nice relationship with a lot of the radio stations down here. So I remember going to Funky Frank 
who had just taken over. He had started back at Rhythm 98 down here, which was this cool little mom and pop station. And I could drive up there and bring a record in and they'd put it on five minutes later uh, to now where he was at Power 96, which was a very big, you know, power station. And, and uh, I was like, Frank, you got to play this record. Yeah, hey, Joe, listen, here's the thing, bro. This record's way too fast. It's 136 beats a minute. I can't put this on the air down here. Are you kidding me? And there's no verses. It's just a hook. Uh, you, come on, Joe. You guys have always made great records. What are you guys doing? Come on, get it together. Come on, you can do better than that. I was like, dude, I was like, listen. I said, just put the record on at midnight. I said, just play it once or twice. I guarantee you, your phone lines will light up. Now, truth be told, oftentimes when I carried records to guys like that, I had like a phone tree system of like 15, 20 people and myself with my multiple voices. So the minute I would hear the record, we would flood the, <laughs> the phones at the radio station ourselves. So he said no, him and Hod, and I was like, oh my God, dude, play, just play the record. So I literally promoted this record for seven, eight months and nobody would play to Unlimited. Y'all ready for this? get out to California, I was out there, I want to say I was out there shooting a music video for Latrim or one of those groups, and I had the record, and I was like, okay, I'm going to go to a couple of the stations while I'm here, and there was this one little station in Santa Monica called Groove Radio, and there was this cat that was the program director there named the Swedish Eagle, it's 1990-91, and I go walking into the station, fully prepared to be rejected again. Did you know him before? I did not know him. This is the first time you meet him. First time I met the Eagle. And I walk in and I said, yeah, hey, my name's Joe Stoner from Radical Records. Uh, is the Swedish Eagle here. And he comes walking out with his arms open. He goes, I've been waiting for you to come. I was like, what? I said, come on, you're fucking with me. I really thought he was fucking with me. No, please. He grabs the record out of my hand, looks at one of the, you know, the interns. He goes, cart this up immediately. And, that, and those are the words you want to hear when you're early in radio. Cart this up. I was like, oh, shit, yeah. Now we're rocking. And we proceeded to have this lovely conversation. I left. And 15 minutes later, heard the record on the radio. Y'all ready for this? And I was thrilled. And then I called him and I thanked him. And he said, we're going to break this record wide open. I said, well, I hope so. I believe in the record. I've been trying to break it for seven, eight months. I said, I haven't been able to get anybody played. He goes, that's all going to change now. About a week and a half later, I get a call from another program director, another program director, and now I'm sending records out. I'm sending records out like crazy. About six weeks later, I get a phone call from the San Antonio Spurs basketball organization. Yeah, hi, we'd like to talk to you about licensing this record for our stadium, our radio, and our television commercials. And so I quoted them a price. Told him I also wanted a basketball and a signed jersey. <laughs> signed jersey, signed basketball. I know nothing about sports, really. And so they licensed the record, and rest is history, bro. Now you hear it in every stadium for every sport. While Joe was turning sports arenas onto techno music and composing his hip-hop, his father was his constant business partner always there to lend advice about what to do when all options appeared exhausted. 
Eventually, the two Stones formed their own record label. But back when Joe was carrying soot-covered boxes around the warehouse, Henry was partnered with someone else, a man who I mentioned earlier in this episode, Morris Levy. I met Morris a handful of times. I did not know him personally. Like, I didn't chitty-chat with Morris. I mean, I spoke with Morris, and I've been in the same room with Morris, and his energy was intense. And he was a big dude, and he definitely was an intense individual. His energy was palpable. Not in a happy, loving, caring, affectionate Uh way. Kind of in a, oh, don't fuck with this guy kind of way. I was always amazed that my dad was always involved with some of these like high-level mob guys, but never got pulled into it. I asked him once, I was like, how did you work with all these mob guys and not become like get sucked into it and be like indebted and he said well two things one always tell those guys the truth if you can't do something say i can't do it because if you say you can do something you better fucking be able to do it he said i don't know i just always managed to not get pulled in but to be able to to do stuff with those guys because it was part of just the deal you had to do business with those guys one of the funny stories Henry told, like how he got out of doing some of the stuff was, I think this was when TK was really rocking. Morris had called Henry. He says, Henry, I'm going to send a couple of guys every Friday. I want you to pay them $500 each. I'll take care of you. Henry said, I'd love to help you, Morris. But here's the thing. I got the IRS in my place right now, auditing my books. All right, goodbye. Click. <laughs> I was like, oh, shit. I said, was the IRS? He goes, well, no, the IRS wasn't near my place. But I'm like, you can't tell him, no, I'm not going to do it. After TK Records declared bankruptcy in 1981, financial woes forced Henry to partner with Levy on a new label, Sunnyview. For Henry, the deal was a Faustian bargain. Levy bailed him out of bankruptcy, but now Henry was in business with a man who routinely bent the law. Since opening his first club in the 50s, Levy had become a master at walking the line between legitimate business and organized crime. His association with the Genovese crime family was an open secret, but law enforcement nevertheless left him alone for decades. Even the widely publicized Payola investigation in the late 50s left Levy unscathed, despite being one of its biggest practitioners. But then, in 1986, this happened. At least five federal grand juries are investigating allegations of mafia involvement in the music business. And Tuesday, a grand jury in Newark, New Jersey, returned a 117-count indictment against 21 people, including Morris Levy, a powerful figure in the music business who owns record companies and record stores. Mr. Levy joins us this morning from Boston, where just 24 hours ago, he was arrested by the FBI. Good morning, Mr. Levy. Good morning, Mr. Ross. Mr. Levy... Federal authorities were describing you yesterday as the godfather of the American music business, the connection between the mob and the music business. What do you say to that? There is no connection between the mob and the music business. At all? I don't believe so. I think my dad's reaction was like, oh shit, I gotta get as far away from that as possible. Which I think caused Henry to lament some of his decisions for the rest of his life going forward with some of the decisions he had to make in order to, you know, when things went bad with TK, when the industry collapsed and the bank did a margin call on all of the money that was out there paying for pressings and paying for everything. That's what triggered the bankruptcy? That's what triggered, yeah. That's what what triggered the bankruptcy. Yeah, yeah. The bank said, everything's due today. 
you know, because Henry had tried to set it all up really well with a pension fund for the employees, with a, you know, and I don't know a lot of the deep, intricate details, but I can tell you this. It wasn't something that went away in a year or two. I know when things were really bad, I was probably 15, 16, and no, I was probably 14, 15 when things got really bad. And then I was 16, 17 when Morris came in and... All of a sudden, the frantic, oh shit, oh no, things are really bad, became like, all right, everything's going to be okay. Henry always used to say the creditors did not stop calling until he made this deal with Morris. And the next day, there were no more calls. They stopped. All of them stopped the next day. And I was like, wow. He said, yeah, it was kind of like freaky. But... uh, I remember when it happened because, you know, they had Sunnyview and then they had uh, the publishing company and then they had a new publishing company that they started. And I think Henry just really stayed in Miami and stayed out of it. And then they ended up settling their business. And I think Henry felt that he made a few bad decisions, but he thought at the moment they were the right decisions because not only the type of people that were involved and what he'd seen happen to other guys like him, in dealing with those people. But now you had the added value of the Federal Bureau of Investigation along with the mafia. You know, and a lot of times people get drawn in to guilt by association. But your father, though, he he was never indicted. Was he even taken in from any kind of question? I don't think so, no. Yeah. No, he, yeah, he managed, I always told him, I said, I don't know how the hell you managed to always not get pulled into all that shit. I think, yeah, Henry was clearly a lucky guy. After cutting ties with Morris Levy, Henry started a new label called Hot Productions with a new business partner not under investigation by the FBI, his son Joe. They ran that company together till 1998 when both decided to pursue other endeavors. Then in 2004, Henry got the itch to get back in the game and founded his last label, the one bearing his namesake, Henry Stone Music. After a little convincing, Joe once again became his father's business partner. This label focuses on digitizing Henry's catalog going all the way back to the 50s, making that music available on digital platforms like iTunes and Spotify, and available to license for television and motion pictures. Joe even unearthed some of the tapes from the soot-covered boxes his father tasked him with moving all those years ago. Then, in 2014, at the age of 93, Henry died, leaving behind a family that loved him, a long list of friends who cared for him, a legacy of making great music, and a prosperous record label now helmed entirely by his son. And he stayed involved in the music business. You know, I would be in this room working on things and he would be sitting right here next to me. Sometimes we would go for hours without talking and then I would all of a sudden turn and say, hey, uh, do you remember what label the uh, Charms uh, released so-and-so came out? And he would kind of be quiet for a second and then perk up and go, yeah, that was uh, deluxe record number 1742. We uh, put that out in uh, 52 and we, uh, we distributed that with this funny story. And then like every detail, but he would do this with multiple titles, with multiple. I mean, it was to me, it was amazing. I was like, oh, Jesus, this guy's like a savant when it comes to, he, he had a gift. <laughs> he was gifted <laughs> and lucky, you know, and that's what it takes, right? There are a lot of talented people that never have the hit, you know. And Henry used to say it himself. He goes, you know, it's not just a matter of having the hit. He goes, you got to have a little luck, too. you got to have that timing and that luck. 
And, you know, I think Henry was, you know, a lucky guy, <laughs> you know, and he knew it. And I think he exploited it sometimes. But I think he was also always very grateful for his, for his luck. And he had a killer run, you know. But aside from his luck and being able to recall catalog numbers of records he hadn't thought about in years, Henry's greatest asset was his respect for the people he worked with and knowing he couldn't achieve anything without them. Henry used to always say this, everything is done with people. There's nothing you can do alone. You have to have people to accomplish any of these bigger things. It's all done with people. And he had incredible people skills. And he had an incredible way of understanding how to get out of his own way and let people do what they do. Henry was always very good with everybody around him about giving them what they needed to use their creativity, giving them what they needed to create something that could be successful, you know, and he knew he would be involved at any, whatever level it was, he was involved. And through all those years of like the radical records and, and, and hot productions and, and all the records that we had there, he and I, as a father and son working together, had an incredibly good relationship because we were both, for whatever reason, able to separate the family stuff from the business stuff and the music business stuff. And we had, I, you know, in retrospect, I guess, you know, we really had a, a, a lot of mutual respect for one another. I maybe didn't realize that at the time. I realize that now. You know, as as a grown man who's been in the music business for more than 30 years, you know, and worked, you know, side by side with Henry Stone, who is arguably one of the greatest record men in history. It was an honor. First, a huge shout out to Jacob Cattell. This episode wouldn't have happened without his help. Before Henry Stone died, Jacob recorded 80 hours of oral history with him, and he has now published some of those recordings as two books titled Payola and Inside the Music Biz. You can find both on Amazon. Big thanks to Joe Stone for spending two hours with me in the Henry Stone Music offices and chatting about his career. You can check out what his label is up to by visiting henrystonemusic.com. This episode was produced by me, Matthew Billy. Tim Townsend was the editor. The musical score was provided by Kevin McLeod. To find out more about Kevin's music, please visit incompetech.com. Between the Liner Notes is distributed by the Goat Rodeo Network. For more information about the show, please visit betweenthelinernotes.com. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our show on iTunes or whatever application you use to listen to podcasts. We'll bring you another lost, forgotten, or obscured story about music on the next Between the Liner Notes.